Hey, uh, we have a guest speaker this morning. Um, when I was looking at this sermon series that we've been in, um, we uh, were talking about uh, rhythms and rituals of the early church and just trying out some new things. We've got a lot of small groups that are going on. By the way, that's a huge thing to celebrate. Lots of people in, in small groups and just getting together and talking about the, this, this sermon series. And I've been hearing, hearing some really, really great things. Uh, but uh, I, knew, I knew that I wanted, for this week, I wanted somebody, to, to, somebody else to share um, and continue the conversation about these early rituals and these rhythms of the early church. Before, before I introduce our guest speaker, um, I want to remind, we're in this really, really, uh, really cool beginning of a really cool time in uh, the life of many churches over, or around the world. And historically, um, we, there's something really important coming up. Easter is coming up. Uh, so that's in April. I think it's April 21st. And historically, the church starts, it was around the 7th century, a little bit before, the church sort of decided that we're going to sort of create this season where we can sort of uh, contemplate Easter, contemplate like why it's such a big deal, and they called it Lent. And so um, Lent is starting next Sunday. Well, next Sunday is going to be the first Sunday in Lent. And Lent is this 40 sort of weekday period where churches all over the world and churches for centuries have, have just created these rhythms and practices. And I'm going to talk about it next week. I'm going to talk specifically next week about fasting, one of the spiritual disciplines that I am the worst at and that I understand the least. And so I've, I've done tons of research and just reading and just, just praying and thinking. And I'm excited next week to kind of just unpack some of the things that I've been learning about, about what, what is this fasting thing and how do we even do that? So that's, that's going to be what we're going to launch in next week. But Lent kicks off with this day called Ash Wednesday, all right? And Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday, this coming up, um, Wednesday. Now, um, in the Old Testament, what we see is that, the, that often God would call his people together, the Israelites together, for sort of like solemn assemblies. And these solemn assemblies were moments where they're supposed to contemplate their mortality, contemplate the, like the, the destructiveness and the depth of their sin and their rebelliousness towards God, and then um, to glory in the grace that, God's get, that God gives, to glory in the goodness that God is, that he covers over that. And so Ash Wednesday is sort of like this kind of continuing tradition of, of, of what happened in the Old Testament where they would kind of get together and, and solemnly sort of contemplate their mortality and their sin. And, um, and so Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday. Now, it's, it's been celebrated all sorts of different ways all over the planet. The point of Ash Wednesday is to not to make us feel guilty like the point isn't for us to walk around on Ash Wednesday like, oh, you know, just feeling so bad about ourselves. The point of Ash Wednesday is to recognize that my sin is my sin is grievous. My sin is deep. My sin is a rebellion against the king of the universe. My sin, is, it hurts his heart. Me worshiping other guys it's, it's, or other gods, it's like, it's like adultery, you know? And that, and that hurts God's heart. And it's important that we sort of, uh, we don't like meditating on that because it doesn't feel quite good. It feels like guilt, but it's not. We have to meditate on that because then that sets us up to find great, great joy in the fact that God treats us as sons and daughters and he gives us grace. And so Ash Wednesday is sort of a solemn day, but it's also a celebration. So what churches have done for centuries is, uh, and still many Catholics do today, so if you grew up Catholic, this is really familiar with you, you would go to an Ash Wednesday service uh, in the morning on Wednesday and they would give you ashes and you would put it on your forehead in the sign of a cross. And so maybe you've even worked with somebody who's Catholic and you've seen them at work on a Wednesday, you're like, What's up, Bob? <laughs> you, uh, you missed a spot, you know? Like, what is that? And it's because there's ashes on the forehead and they carry it around and you wear it all day and it's sort of a reminder to, to you and to others that this is like a really special season that we're entering into. Um, so um, can you do that this Wednesday? 
you totally can, all right? I mean, like, I don't want to be afraid of the whole ashes thing. Like, that's a really beautiful thing, and I encourage you to do your own research on that and read about it. Just Google it. You can learn a lot of stuff about what that, what that is. Or here's another alternative is I'm going to suggest, is what if at dinner on Wednesday, um, your family get together, you have your normal family dinner, and uh, you have a candle at dinner. You have it lit during, during dinner, and then at, at, after dinner, you blow it out, and you talk about, and you use it as a way to talk about, man, life is short. And our, our lives here are very short, and our lives are going to be extinguished. But, man, it's so good news that God is just so much bigger than all of it. And you can sort of take that candle and take some of that ash, and you can talk about it with your kids, you know, like, hey, this is, this is, what this, this is a special day. This is Ash Wednesday. And here, look, we're, we're, we're broken and we're lost in our sin, but God is good above and beyond it all. Um, so that's one way to celebrate it. A lot of pe- people do some other things uh, to celebrate uh, Ash Wednesday. Some, a lot of f- people fast on Ash Wednesday, so that's like a fasting day for many people. We'll talk about that next Sunday. But because Ash Wednesday for, for a long time has been a fasting day, um, they started a, n- a new tra- uh, tradition on Tuesday uh, to kind of like, it was like a, like a feasting day to get ready for Ash Wednesday. Does anybody know what that day was called? Okay, yes, thank you, good. So uh, Mardi Gras right there, do you guys know that that's French and that's French for, what is it? Fat Tuesday, all right? And so it's like a horrible name for a, for a holiday, right? Um, but uh, it's, you know, it's a day where people would get together and they would just, they would feast, they would celebrate. You know, it's obviously turned into like, you know, kind of wild, crazy party. But really the beginnings, the beginnings is, is a very, uh, a, a, a different kind of a party, a party, a celebration. We're going to eat and we're going to dive into tomorrow because tomorrow we're going to kind of contemplate the, the depth of our sin and how much we need Jesus. Uh, so anyways, that was a tradition. What I've learned is that a lot of people don't do Fat Tuesday in a lot of Scandinavian countries. You know what they do? I thought this was fun. They call it, they call Call it Pancake Tuesday. It's for real. Um, so, and, and that's a huge tradition. It's just like on Tuesday, they just eat like tons of pancakes, I guess, or maybe for breakfast or for dinner. Yeah, how fun is it to do breakfast for dinner? You guys ever do, have you done that lately? You need to do that. I'm going to suggest this for our church, okay? Hey, make Tuesday Pancake Tuesday, all right? Um, have some breakfast for dinner or have them for breakfast or, or be weird out your people you work with and just bring pancakes for lunch. You know, I, I don't know. But make, but, and, and if you got kids, like talk about, hey man, this is, this is, this is a, a, you know, this is a part of an early tradition where tomorrow we're going into Ash Wednesday and maybe you can do that candle thing. I don't know. I just, I just want to encourage us to just kind of find our own rhythms. The good news is that people have celebrated these traditions in so many different ways um, in all sorts of different contexts. And so we can, the, the point is this, is we're moving into a season where we're celebrating that even though our sin is devastating, that through Christ we've been redeemed and adopted, and that's better than any food, that's better than any, than any party, that's better than, than anything, um, is the goodness of our great God. And so that's the season we're going into. We'll talk more next Sunday, um, but I wanted to give you a little context for Lent and Ash Wednesday. Awesome. Well, um, you get a two-for-one deal, because that was Brooks's mini-sermon, and now we have uh, my friend Jeannie Barr is going to share and, uh, and preach to us this morning. So Jeannie, come on up. Uh, give Jeannie a hand. Listen, here's what you guys got to know. I was a, like a college kid at, at just attending Eugene Faith Center, and I didn't know anything. And Jeannie was the children's pastor at Faith Center for a lot of years, and she gave me all sorts of opportunities to lead in kids' church, to lead worship. And I probably like totally sucked at so many different things. <laughs> but you gave me opportunities, and uh, Jeannie and Mark are just such huge influences in my life. And so it's just an honor that are a part of our church, and it's an honor that you get to speak this morning. So, thank you. Love you. Thank you. Well, 
don't tell Brooks, but he was one of my favorites. So I have my own snow story because we have been on a little bit of Mr. Toad's wild ride. We went to Phoenix last week. They got a drop of snow, and they said, look at it now. You'll never see it for another generation. And to surprise my brother, he turned 50. So on our way back, um, we had to delay a day because we couldn't get into San Francisco, or San Francisco wasn't leaving and going anywhere, and then Eugene wasn't going anywhere, so we were delayed getting back. And uh, then we finally got home late at night, was it midnight or something, and um, we have no electricity, and our son has no electricity and water, so we spent the night under the blankets, and then we, we got to get a hotel room. So we've been in lots of places. <laughs> So this sermon is brought to you by the Snowmageddon, United Airlines, Internet Plugins, and Phoenix, San Francisco, and Denver, and a nice school teacher named Julie who gave us, who loaned us her power stick so we could charge our phones, the shuttle guy who loaned us his shovel to dig our car out, um, Ford trucks, four-wheel drive, eWeb, thank you very much. The Even Hotel, Takeout, NyQuil, and our friends who opened their home to take care of us, and Brooks for downloading my notes to the video team back there. <laughs> Thank you. I may be wearing last week's dirty laundry, but I am here. <laughs> so for the last few weeks, as you know, we've been um, talking about the rhythms and the rituals of the early church. In Acts 2, it talks about how they devoted themselves to the teaching and fellowship, sharing of meals and prayer. Uh, the time was described as where many miracles and wonders were happening. They met together in one place and shared everything. Uh, they worshiped together. They um, uh, ate meals together. And they had the goodwill of all the people that were watching them. And each day, it says that the Lord added to the number of people that were being saved. It was good stuff, and the church was being established. Um, Jesus was bringing a new radical way of living life. Now, each week, we've been looking at the different rhythms and the rituals. We've done communion and baptism and prayer, fellowship. And koinonia was your big word last, last week. Um, but today, I want to talk about uh, the glue that holds all of them together. Um, so as the good news spread um, to other countries, there were a map behind me. It's going north up into Turkey and Greece. And these little fellowships were becoming established churches. And they were, they were keeping these good foundations of the gospel of faith and grace and forgiveness, um, their rhythms and rituals, uh, were uh, served as reminders of who they were as God's people. The rhythms and the rituals were kind of like uh, the tools in their tool belt of faith, and they were used to help them to remember, remember, remember who you are. Um, when they did things like teaching and prayer, it would inspire a deeper understanding of who Jesus was. And when they do things like baptisms, it would make them more thoughtful about who we are in Christ, our identity, and who we are becoming more like him. Um, and when we have communion, it's to help us draw out of our busy lives 
and to contemplate the love that God has shown to us and the sacrifice that he's made. Baptism and dedications and communion, again, um, are meant to encourage growth and be rites of passage as we draw closer to Jesus. And things were going great in the church. For a few short years, um, it was good until a little trouble started to happen. Uh, a bad attitude came in. And the one thing that made all the rhythms and the rituals vital and inspirational were starting to become misunderstood a little bit and then ignored somewhat. One such affected group that we're going to look at today was the Galatian churches, and that's up in Turkey, and there were a series of churches up there that Paul had started. Um, they were made up of non-Jews, so Gentiles, who were coming to the faith. But what happened was that a group of Jew Christian Jewish missionaries came up from the south and um, started to tell the new Gentile Christians that you know, God's promises were really for the Jews. So, to be spiritually complete, you needed to be circumcised first. Now, I know that made all the guys cringe, but I wondered what they were telling the women. But anyway, um, that faith in Jesus was not enough, basically, is what they were saying, and that, that they had to follow the Mosaic Law. To make a long story short, as a result, the people started to compare themselves to one another. They were competing for a higher spiritual status, and some bickering started to happen. Um, they were provoking one another to anger. There were jealousies and a whole lot of pride going on. Wrong attitudes, judgments had turned their focus from the freedom of grace to a spiritual conceit. Their rhythms and rituals continued, but they were compromised somewhat. Problem was that the people started to depend more on their own goodness and relying less upon the grace and, and love that God shows to them. Um, and they wound up missing the whole point. So when we start to focus on ourselves a little bit, and we're all susceptible to doing this, what happens is there's kind of a slow, uh, subtle walking back of the basic meaning of what community is. In small steps, we can become estranged from the idea of what Jesus talked about grace, what he meant about grace. And that still small voice that we all listen to, um, relying that that's the Holy Spirit talking to us, it becomes less and less familiar because we're all focused on ourselves and we're not stopping to really listen to where the Lord is leading us. So Paul heard about all these things going on, and he got fired up. Uh, he said this attitude does not come from God, and as a result, was a tough love letter to the Galatians. He took the first half of it, trying to spell out um, where the attitude adjustment was needed, and the second half of the letter, he describes what the right attitude is to have in a church community. He reminded them with really bold handwriting that faith and grace and freedom is the law to follow. And he told them the one thing that, they, that should characterize their community rhythms and rituals. That one thing is how we care and love one another. 
That's the one thing that underlines everything. And then he told them how to do this. Uh, truth be told, the Galatian church wasn't the only church that was having issues like this and that needed a reminder. Um, if you look at the church in Philippi, that's in Greece, uh, he writes to them, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one spirit and of one mind, and do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Peter got into the action too and sent his letter, circular letter to the churches in Asia. He said, you must all have the same attitude and the same feelings, love one another and be kind and humble with one another. Do not pay back evil with evil or cursing with cursing. Instead, pay back with a blessing because a blessing is what God promised to give you when he called you above a Above everything, love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Paul hits another church in Ephesus. All, be always humble and gentle and patient. Show your love by being tolerant with one another. Do your best to preserve the unity with the Spirit, which the Spirit gives, gives by means of peace and that binds you together. I know we can listen to these verses and and it can hit us and we can kind of tr start to evaluate ourselves and we go, you know, I think I, think I love enough, enough. Um, or, uh, you know, I've got really good boundaries. I love people, but I've got really good boundaries. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that no matter how well you think you're, you're loving, the Lord wants to show you how to love even deeper. Um, he wants us to love like he loves and what God is really after is the forming of our character to be more like him. He wants us to have a heart like he does. The same attitude. We hear that in scripture. It says, have the same attitude as Jesus. Um, looking again back at the Galatian church, we see uh, what, uh, what Paul says the characteristics are of a group of people who are walking and having the right attitude. Um, it's, you've heard them before, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And he says, there is no law against that kind of an attitude. That's a good thing. Um, he says, put away what your feelings are and focus in on that. Um, I think when we look at these things, we have, have to constantly look at ourselves and we say, am I working with the Lord to help prune myself to understand these things and have characteristics like, like this on a deeper level? Am I letting the Lord show me how to go deeper to a whole new level of deeply, really? And it's, and it's good that we individually look at ourselves and we're, we're talking to the Lord and growing in that, but... What Paul is saying in this letter is that it goes beyond ourselves. This is a picture of what the corporate church should look like. Working together, it's you and me and us working together to show those characteristics to people who are looking at us. In other words, 
uh, the church body should be unified um, through the service of loving others. That's the power behind a Christian community is loving and helping others. Um, it's probably like three weeks ago, um, a question was posed to the West Side staff. And the question was this, when it's all said and done, what trophy would we want God to give us as a church? And I'm happy to say that in a really short period of time and all together, the answer was love. How we loved people. That should be good. It should bring smiles to your face. If we as a church community focus on um, the expressions of love for each other and then the greater world and then on to the greater world, it's really a beautiful picture and it's really hard to resist. And God says it's highly effective. Teaching, fellowship, sharing food, sharing your time, your companionship, prayers, baptisms, communion, Easter, Advent, Christmas, underscoring all church rituals and rhythms in and out of seasons of ease or struggle, there's one key, and it's how we love one another. Paul goes on in his letter to talk about how to show love as a community in two significant ways. I'm going to talk about those, and then I've added a third one that Jesus came up with, so I think it's pretty good. Um, reading out of uh, Galatians 6, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ means loving God with all your heart and soul and body and mind and strength and loving each other. If anyone thinks that they are something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. How do we show God's kind of love to people? The first one, it says, is to help restore uh, one who is carrying the burden of sin. The scripture describes this as someone who's stuck, who's trying, but doesn't have the strength to do it themselves. It could be about addiction, it could be something else, but someone who's truly stuck and doesn't have the next step. And when we're um, loving someone who is stuck, it's a good thing to remember that um, we all struggle the side of heaven and we can't put anyone on a pedestal. No one is above the need of, of love and hope and understanding and forgiveness. And the kind of love that responds to helping to restore someone is that love responds with compassion and gentleness and underscore gentleness. As Paul said that, this, you treat them gently. As Christians, we're going to continue to sin and experience a whole range of uh, sinful desires, temp temper, lust, and jealousies. You know, we get envious of one another. And even though we desire to please Jesus, it's an ongoing struggle. It really is for all of us, and we have to remember that we all are struggling. Our lives are a mixture, really, of pleasing Jesus, trying to stand against sin, and then we sin, and then we ask for forgiveness, and we try and learn from it, and we grow, but it, it, it is something that we all experience. But 
The prayer that we all have is that Jesus would grow in us and transform us to be more like him. And that's why we need to love one another without pretending. Jesus is our example here on how to come alongside someone. He said he'd never leave us or forsake us and that he's our very help in the midst of struggle. Um, and following Jesus' example, our mission should be to come alongside and help with restoration of someone that we love and care about. <clears throat> the problem in the Galatian church is that uh, Paul said that they were uh, worn out folks who were pushed down under the pressure of their sin and that the other church members did not even con were not even concerned enough to help. They added to the burden by pushing that person down with judgment instead of helping to lift them up. Paul had really stern correction for these people. Paul said with all authority that what a believing community should be doing is making sure that these people are cared for. You know, sometimes people find themselves in situations where they don't even know how they feel or how they got there. Um, and to come away from being stuck, they need a sense of a security in a trusting relationship. Because some burdens God never intended for us to carry all by ourselves. To be part of restoring someone to health is a hard thing to do, but also a really beautiful process. It's found in an intimate relationship, most likely, just a very few who understand the situation and love the person who's struggling. If you're so honored, bearing this burden should be done with humility and love and gentleness and in relationship. I want to tell you a story about a restoration. I love watching the Olympics, and I saw this documentary recently on ESPN, and it was about the Olympic swimmer Mike Phelps, Michael Phelps, who was most impressive. I remember watching his mom cheering in the crowd, and he's looking at his mom, and she's cheering him on, and they had this thing going on, but what you didn't see was a dad. And there was issues with absentee, absentee dad that came into play later. But you know, no one has ever won more gold than Michael Phelps. 18 gold medals when he retired in 2012. But when he retired, there was no more swimming. He got bored. Um, he had lots of money, but he started to party he started drinking and eventually wound up getting arrested for drunk driving. And that eventually led him to being alone in a hotel room, thinking it just might be better if he ended his life there. The most decorated Olympian was empty and suicidal. Fortunately, he had a friend who came alongside and walked him through the struggle. It was the world-famous NFL star Ray Lewis, Baltimore Ravens, BC he had gone through some of the very same feelings that Michael was going through. He retired the same year as Michael, and even though he was an All-American Super Bowl champion, most valuable player, All-Pro Defensive Player of the Year, NFL Player of the Decade, Pro Football Hall of Fame, Ray had his own problems that he never learned to deal with. An absentee father, abusive stepfather. Even at one point on trial for murder, which he was later cleared. All kinds of re bad relational stuff. He was in a rough place. Through all this, 
though, Lewis became a Christian with the help of another friend, Michael Singletary, played for Chicago Bears Super Bowl champ, all kinds of awards, coaching all these teams, Vikings, Ram, 49ers, all those guys. And uh, he had father issues as well and tragedy in his life. But when he heard of his friend's struggle, he came alongside Ray Lewis. And in turn, when Ray Lewis was in a healthy spot, he came alongside Michael Phelps. As a result, as a result, out of this friend helping friend, Michael Phelps opened his heart to Christ. And he, then he decides, I think I'll go back for another Olympics. So he went back and he won five more gold medals. So now he has 23. That's going to be really hard to break. He's married now and he has a baby. And he has a new perspective on life. Paul talked about these kinds of relationships in 2 Corinthians it says, Jesus comes alongside us when we go through hard times. And before you know it, he brings alongside someone else who's going through hard times so that we can be there for that person, just as God was there for us. C.S. Lewis says, um, hardship often prepares an ordinary person for an extraordinary destiny. I think that uh, God took the Ordinary people, even though, you know, they're, they've got all these trophies, they're just ordinary people. It took an ordinary person to do a tremendous extra, extraordinary thing to affect someone else. Um, that's an extraordinary destiny. And I think it's a goal we should all have. I want to have that kind of destiny to say that it's about coming alongside other people. Sometimes we're weaker, sometimes we're stronger. But just because someone's down doesn't mean they're out. The bottom line is that we need to have willing hearts and open eyes to help and love people around us. The second thing, the second way to show love to the people in our church is to help carry the burdens and sufferings of life. That's a little bit different. Um, and love responds in this way with empathy or understanding, encouragements, and action. On any given day, someone in our church community is carrying a burden. I'm sure we have most, everybody in here has a, carrying some sort of burden. Sometimes it's just a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day that needs a hug, an understanding, or a nap, or coffee with a friend. But sometimes it's a burden of life. A burden of life is work, because people expect things that, from you and you, you just, it's hard. Burden of work, difficult marriage, children who might be sick, or problems at school, or a long ways from the Lord. Infertility, grief, spouses unwell or aging, broken home worries, childhood trauma, depression, or burdens of ministry. All these are not uncommon in our church family. But we are blessed, really. We are a blessed people, but life is life. And we all know sooner or later, it can get tough for all of us. And during these times, we need, need to be able to reach out to one another and love on each other. So how do we do that? Here's the first thing. How do we help someone survive a burden of life? First thing is, be there. The power of presence is really a powerful thing. 
because what it's conveying is value. And often when we get um, carrying heavy burdens, we forget our value. A professional bereavement uh, counselor advises that you don't really need any great expertise or even anything really to say. The most important thing is to be there. Holding a hand, getting a warm washcloth if there are tears. Just be there. The second thing is to listen. Listening is one, probably one of the most important things we can do for one another. If we care, we can listen. Because a problem shared is a problem cut in half. And when we listen, we can pick up the nuances. When we look in someone's eyes and we're listening, we can pick up the nuances of the fear or confusion, and that can help us to comfort them. Um, also, listening helps the other person to verbally process. Sometimes you just need to throw it up and process and figure out and hear yourself say what your next step is. The third thing is to do something tangible. To go beyond, and I don't want to make light of it, go beyond, I'll pray for you, because that I still say that's so important. I'll, I'll pray for you, and uh, call me if you need anything. That's great, but do what's needed. Mow their lawn, go to the store for them, fold laundry, watch their dog, pick their kids up from school. It also reaffirms people of value when we follow up with what we say we're going to do. The fourth thing is um, to avoid the tendency to try and solve stuff. Because sometimes we can, but often we just, we just can't. Uh, we don't know the whole story, the whole level of emotions behind something. The aim is not to be eloquent. It's to help the other person process. Listen, I would say listen and um, avoiding... Uh, the tendency, uh, avoiding the tendency to solve things, there's something, it, they kind of go together because when you're listening and, you're, and you don't want to solve things, um, listening to understand is the bigger than listening to try to respond is what I'm trying to say. Listen to understand. Ask the Lord to give you eyes to see and the words to comfort. The Holy Spirit really does do that in amazing ways. How many of you ever gotten a text or a note or a phone call just at the right time when you needed to be encouraged? That's how the Holy Spirit works. I have a friend, Tracy, one season in my life going through a really hard time, and I was in the garage, and I was crying, and I was throwing things around, and she had this tendency when I was having these moments to either call me or show up, and it began to be really spooky, but <laughs> she showed up on that day, and she just walked up the driveway just smiling, and she goes, I knew you were having a hard day, because she was a really good listener. She listened to the Holy Spirit, and she followed through. Um, so get involved with one another's lives. We, you know, small groups, take people out for coffee, you know, retreats, do all the things to get to know each other more and be able to help each other because you all have wisdom and experience and you all have something good to give. We all have that certain sphere of influence. 
We, all, we can't do it all by ourselves, but all these little circles and spheres of influence can make a huge difference. Those are the two things that Paul talked about and how to love as a community, but now I'm going to add the one that Jesus talked about. Um, it's called hospitality. And with hospitality, love responds with kindness and generosity. Hospitality is kind of like the first two things about bearing each other's burdens. It's just like them because it's not an option for us. Hospitality is a necessary practice in the community life. It's a rhythm of life. Let me tell you what it's not. Hospitality is not how beautiful your table is set or how fresh your centerpiece is, although you could do that in another way, but that alone is not hospitality. It's much bigger than that. Hospitality means welcoming the stranger or being kind to a stranger. It's about helping someone who you don't know, a stranger, without ever knowing if, it's, if what you've done to help made a difference. It's, it's a raw obedience without a thank you. Um, so defining a stranger. Lots of cultural practices and hospitality in ancient Middle East, hospitality was extended to the stranger that was a male of another family, and maybe their donkey, and you, they expected you to pay them back. When Christianity came along, hospitality expanded to include women and families and their donkeys, without exception or without expectation of payback and not necessarily a family connection at all. But Jesus went even a step further in his definition of what kindness to a stranger is. The parable of the Good Samaritan was a vulnerable, poor, and sick foreigner who someone, an unlikely person, stopped and helped. Orphans, widows, and prisoners, Matthew 25 says this. The king will say to those on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, when did we do that? When did we do that? Lord, when would we see you? Because when I surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. There was a great emphasis on the idea that the kindness to stranger is really entertaining Jesus. That's a powerful thing to wrap your head around. Jesus wanted his followers to have eyes to see and ears to hear, and he's very serious about the importance of keeping kindness or hospitality towards strangers central in the spread of the gospel. We have a lot of good messages to say, but people are more likely or less likely to respond to a really rational conversation about the gospel, but they will respond more to seeing love in action. So I can't think of a better way to give than to give an example of what hospitality looks like. 
It's the policeman that boldly embraces a newly arrested prisoner, scared to death, and prays for them to overcome addiction. It's helping a family who's been kicked out of their housing and with no means of a next meal by giving them your last 20 bucks. It's sharing your umbrella with a homeless person. It's going to New Hope basketball games to cheer on young players who you don't know well, who are far from home, and give them encouragement and love by your presence. It's opening your backyard all summer, welcoming anyone and everyone, and making available barbecue and fellowship. It's quietly responding to helping people that you don't know well with food and clothing. It's comforting the lonely stranger next to you in the hospital emergency room when they find out their child has just received a terrible diagnosis and you cry with them. It's being kind, sorry, being kind to someone newly arrived from a foreign country in an airport. It's going to care centers for the elderly and taking, telling them about Jesus. It's bringing lunch to a teacher, donating underwear and socks. It's hearing that a child's hair is so matted that she just won't go to school and then paying the hairdresser to comb it out. It's giving up your daily day off to cover another shift so they can get cancer treatments. It's giving blood donation to the name of a child who has leukemia. It's going to Les Schwab for a 19 cent fix and overhearing a desperate need of a family next to you that can't pay for it, and you walk away paying for their tires and new battery. It's offering to share your hotel room when you couldn't get one yourself. Hospitality is kindness to a stranger. And you know what's interesting and wonderful? West Side people have done most of these things. How can we keep our rhythms and our rituals strong by loving and caring for one another with an attitude like Jesus. It's helping someone struggle with sin. It's encouraging someone with the burdens of life. And it's showing kindness to strangers. We are not in spiritual competition with one another, but we're a spiritual team, loving our brothers and sisters and any stranger that comes our way. Uh, we're here to serve and love one another. That's the one thing, to serve and love one another. And then your rhythms and your rituals and your community will be right and strong. And you may be even entertaining Jesus. You never know. <laughs>